Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. About five years ago, I hit a wall and I just thought, I can't keep living like this. Like my body feels horrible. I'm I'm tired of living in fear all the time. I'm tired of not having a social life, you know, with a lot of friends. And so I, I decided I needed to really change my life, change the trajectory. So I started reading, learning, digging in, you know, how can I heal myself? How can I heal my body, my mind, my soul? I spent a lot of time in Sedona, which is a very healing energy, a lot of vortexes, a lot of energy workers and healers. So I spent a lot of time there and just focused on holistically, how can I heal myself and hopefully change that trajectory of that cycle of trauma and tragedy because I could not, I just could not deal with another, another situation. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story, what happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends, and welcome. You know, we've all heard the words, the truth will set you free. It's a quote from the Bible, so it's been around for a while. And in terms of healing our trauma, the truth is literally everything. In a toxic family, the truth of what goes on behind closed doors is hidden. There are so many secrets and lies that are handed down from one generation to the next about what is okay when it's actually not okay. 
how it's okay to treat our family when it's 100% not okay, how abuse is okay, lies, judgments, all the things handed down over the generations. And I speak to people every day who are only just now beginning to discover the truth of who they really are years and years later. Because within that toxic framework, we were given so many false beliefs about ourselves, even very simple beliefs like you are bad, useless, stupid, nobody loves you, you should be ashamed of yourself, you will never amount to anything, you are not worthy of this. And many of these are only in our subconscious mind. We don't even think these things necessarily in our conscious minds. It's all the lies and the manipulations within toxic family homes, but every single one of those beliefs that gets filed away in your subconscious mind growing up can become so powerful in your life. Each belief changes every choice you make. Just something as simple as not going for the dream job or the promotion because you know you're not worthy of it. Not approaching that potential amazing future partner because you know you're not deserving of that. Many, many tiny decisions over many years. It can change the entire trajectory of your life. And the biggest problem is that you can't see it. You can't see the truth of who you are anymore because it's buried too deep. And so you continue in those same toxic patterns for years and years. And I think for most of us, just at some point, we just come across some random post or a blog or a comment from someone that'll give us our first clue that, oh, maybe my parent was a narcissist or, oh, it is actually abuse when a parent hits you. That was just normal and accepted in my home. You know, the truth is that you grew up with a highly dysfunctional parent, abusive, abandoning, manipulative, whatever was true for you. And they projected all of their own trauma and anger and hate and unworthiness onto you. And so actually none of the terrible things you've been made to believe about yourself are true. It's just toxic beliefs passed down as truth, but it is not the truth. And even if we do know the truth, even if we've discovered that for ourselves. Once we've figured that out, it can be almost impossible to speak it. If you know bad things have happened in your life and you want to bring the truth of your life to the surface because you're done holding all the secrets and lies, but you know that it's going to blow up your life the moment you open your mouth, where do you even start with that? How many people do you have in your life who don't want to know about the truth? The family members, the friends, all of the people who want to gloss over the truth to save face, to save the family name. How hard is it being surrounded by people who you can't be real with, who you can't speak your truth to, because you know it's going to be too hard for them to hear it? The listeners of this podcast, you will understand that hearing other people's stories, other people's truth every week is how we learn. It's how we recognize more about our own story. It's how we know we're not alone. It's where we hear those golden nuggets of wisdom on how to create a better life for ourselves. And so after sharing this podcast with you for three and a half years now, I think we're ready to take this to the next level. I would love to personally invite you into something new that I'm creating, which is going to run alongside our regular podcast episodes. It's called What's the Truth Community. In this safe space, through subscriber-only episodes, we are going to be spending some quality time together a couple of times a month to hear more about what is the truth so that you can recognize it. And when you recognize it, you can change it. We are going to dig deeper into the truth behind the stories. We're going to be exploding the toxic beliefs that don't belong to us so that we can live in peace and freedom and authenticity. It's time to take your power back. 
In this beautiful community of safety, friendship and understanding, you will get access to subscriber-only episodes. You'll get early access to our regular podcast episodes, all ad-free from Season 7. That's this season. So from the beginning of Season 7, all podcasts in the membership will be ad-free and all for the cost of a cup of coffee a month. You can join me directly via the Apple Podcast app, or if you listen anywhere else, you can join me via Supercast. It's super easy to log in over there, and the link is in the show notes. In episode one, I am going to be sharing a little bit more of my own personal story and how the truth has truly set me free. I would truly love to see you over there. This week, my guest on the podcast is Kendra Petty. And if you want to hear the truth, Kendra is bringing it in spades. When you read a book that shares someone's personal life story, have you ever thought about the process of that? How hard it must be to make a decision to share so much of yourself. I'm truly in awe of anyone who decides to share their story to help other people. And that is exactly Kendra's mission in writing her book. Sharing in this way is a huge lesson to all of us that there is no shame in any of our stories. The shame is not ours. We were the victims. We were not the perpetrators. Kendra's story involves terrible abuse at the hands of her mother in a very toxic childhood home. Kendra's mother was deeply religious and she eventually started a cult. She was preaching the word of God whilst continuing to physically abuse Kendra in a terrifying way. When Kendra eventually escaped her childhood home, many things happened. Kendra's book is called I Can't Believe I'm Not Dead, Escaping Abuse, a Cult, Attempted Murder and Other Insanities, and that includes a cancer diagnosis after being poisoned by her employer at one point. You know, Kendra's story really shows us how that subconscious programming that we receive in childhood from devastating abuse can send us back into situations of abuse continually throughout our lives. And that's where the truth is so important, right? Kendra is an absolute thriver, and you are going to hear what she is doing in her life now to just live her most beautiful life. Please join me now for Kendra's story. Kendra, I'm so honoured to be here with you to hear your incredible story. You've written a book called I Can't Believe I'm Not Dead, Escaping Abuse, Occult, Attempted Murder and Other Insanities. And I know you share your story because you want to help others to see that you don't just have to survive trauma and tragedy. You can thrive in spite of it because seriously, if you can thrive, it's possible for all of us. And it's a beautiful mission because sharing a story like this is not an easy thing to do. But as with every hard story, it comes with real wisdom and so much information for all of us on how we can overcome our own trauma. Kendra, if we can go back to the very beginning of your story, and I wonder if you can share with us your very earliest memories of being a part of your family. What were the feelings you associated with those first memories? What was life like as a small child? Uh, I have very early memories of growing up in Oklahoma. Uh, my mother was mentally unstable, mentally ill, and that was always reflective of my memories and in our family, the strife that we had from from my earliest memories. I don't quite recall the age, but probably four or five, just remembering all the angst and fights and sort of 911 hair on fire from my mother, very emotional, a lot of outbursts, just could not control her temper. And so growing up in that environment was uh, very, very difficult. And my father was really sort of the balance for us. But even he, he could only take so much. And then when I was eight and my older brother was 10, he was my best friend. He was killed in a horrific accident. Uh, we were together and he was trying to protect me and do as our mother said and make sure he got me back home safe. 
and he was killed in the process. And that that event just really tore my family apart. We were already struggling as a family just because of my mother's mental illness. But that event completely ripped my family apart. I lost my brother, who was my best friend. He was my protector. I started having, immediately started having horrific night terrors that lasted my entire life. My mom got even sicker and and more mentally ill, just went further into the dark abyss of mental illness. It caused much more fights between my mother and father. My father eventually left us about a year and a half, two years later. So really, it was just the breaking apart of my family and the loss of my brother and then the loss of my family. And then my mother continued to spiral for years and years, just to even worse, further depths of mental illness. Yeah, it's chaotic right from the start, isn't it? And I'm I'm so sorry to hear about your brother. I mean, just just that one piece, you know, that one piece of your story with your your brother and the accident. I mean, that's enough to change a person and to change a family without everything else that was going on. And so you describe your mother as struggling with with mental illness and the chaos. Can you tell us a little bit about your mother and and what was going on on a daily basis? Sure. Well, my mother was raised Baptist. We, we came from a, a, a religious background. My mother was raised Baptist. Her father was a Baptist. And my father was raised in the Methodist church with his family. And so there was a little bit of a, a struggle with religion and, you know, who's being baptized where or how. But after my brother was killed and my mother, my parents divorced, my mother remarried, she, I think in seeking relief and comfort, her and her husband, her husband had lost his wife, which happened to be my mother's best friend. It's very convoluted. But my mother married her best friend's husband. Her She lost her best friend to cancer. He lost his wife to cancer. And I inherited two new stepsisters uh, in that marriage. And I think in both of them seeking comfort from their losses, they started a church that morphed into this really bizarre cult, if you will. It was a church that was started in our home and it grew and it grew and it grew into, you know, bigger places and churches, bigger facilities. But it just really got stranger and stranger and more bizarre. And it and it really paved the way for even more abuse and and neglect, if you will. But my mother and and as I understand it, her mother had mental illness, and I never saw that from my grandmother, but apparently she was on lithium her whole life. It would have been nice if my mother had been on lithium because I thought my grandmother was the best. I thought she was amazing. So if that's what lithium did for that type of mental illness, it probably would have helped my mother a lot. But because of her religion, she wouldn't go to the doctor. She wouldn't get help. And back then, there, you know, there just wasn't as much education in mental illness. And there was a lot of other mental illness in our family. She had a brother. My father had a brother. Both of them lived almost their whole adult life in mental illness facilities and died in them in their 70s. So it really just was a cloud of this dark cloud over our family on both sides with, with mental illness. And it really, my mother never acknowledged her mental illness, never acknowledged any of her behaviors. It was as though she lived in a whole nother world. But every day, every day was just 911 hair on fire. Every day, there was a lot of trepidation. You never knew when she was going to explode, but you knew she would at any given moment. And you never knew what would bring that on. But, you know, she would throw things, break things, scream and scream and scream. But, you know, the worst of it was she was extremely physically abusive, very physically abusive. And after my brother died, she really focused that, that physical abuse on me. And it, they were brutal beatings for and, until I left home at 18. Goodness, and it's so much, isn't it? I'm always fascinated by people who start these cults, these religious movements. Are they just wanting to immerse themselves in God? Or it's it just doesn't make sense because there's so much control in those environments, isn't there? And on one hand, it's... It, feels like it's so super god focused and yet and yet there's all this abuse and control and you can't do anything i mean none of it makes sense and none of it seems to go together does it At i mean all. is At it all. is it just a grab for control do you think is that what they're trying to do 
I think a lot of religions and a lot of cults, yes, it, it is about control. For for us, we were raised in a bubble because of this religion. And a lot of the focus was on the Old Testament, which is even stranger. But I, we weren't allowed to go to the movies. We weren't allowed to watch TV. We weren't allowed to listen to the radio. We weren't allowed to read magazines. We weren't, we weren't allowed to associate with anyone from outside the church. I couldn't go to friends' houses. We certainly weren't allowed to date. We weren't allowed to go to the doctor because they believed that God would heal. So they would pray over us and put their hands on us and pray over us and pray in tongues and God would heal. And so there was no proper medical care. There were beatings in the name of God. It was, it, I think it was certainly about control. My mother was very domineering and very controlling over everyone. So I, yeah. I, I agree with you. A, a lot of it was about control. Mm. And so, as you said earlier, you would have been super isolated in that environment. Did you go to a normal school or? We went to a Christian school. Mm -hmm. So, so during the day at school, it was, there was a curriculum that was self-taught, self-paced. We didn't have teachers. We had a teacher if we had questions, but we really taught ourselves, scored our own work. It was, it was a Christian curriculum. So there was a lot of Bible and God integrated into all of our studies. And then when we weren't in class, there was a lot of Bible study and, you know, prayer groups or whatever. And then we would go home and we would read the Bible and pray and memorize scripture for hours on end. And we would do homework and then we would have Bible studies at home. It was, it was all encompassing. I mean, that was literally, I played a lot of sports, but outside of the sports, that's all we did was church. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all consuming, isn't it? And that constant chaos of having a mum who has mental health issues. I mean, it really changes who we are. It changes our nervous system. It changes the way we function in the world. What was your mental health like? I mean, did you notice that you were struggling when you were younger or was it just kind of, well, this is just life? Yeah, I think, I don't think I didn't realize not everyone was living the way we were living in terms of the abuse and the beatings. I mean, I knew it wasn't right, but I, I just, I, I just didn't have anything else to compare it to because that's all I had known my, really my whole, my whole life. You know, my escape was sports when I became a teenager and, and, you know, the beatings just never stopped. And my, you know, my mom's just constant verbal verbal and mental and emotional and physical abuse as a teenager there there was probably a year and a half that I wanted to kill myself and that I contemplated ways to kill myself uh, although you know I, I never tried but I was just so depressed and and I think back then and so young you didn't recognize depression and anxiety I, I just knew I I didn't want to continue living day to day with my mother and and all the all the chaos and when I when I left her home and moved in with my dad in the middle of my senior year of high school at 18, it, it was just a world of difference, you know, not having that chaotic hair on fire situation, 911 every day was, it was a breath of fresh air. Yeah. So by the time you finished high school, you've been subjected to endless amounts of abuse, physical, mental, spiritual. You've lost your brother your parents have divorced, you've lived daily with a mother struggling with mental health issues, you've been forced to live in this sort of cult-like existence and then you're super isolated and cut off from everything outside of that religion. How did you manage to leave that life behind? And, and I think to add to that, just to round that out, because it it is a lot, but there was also from the time I was six or seven to I was also or nine or 10, I was also sexually abused by a babysitter, a next door neighbor babysitter to, to add to that. So, and that, that babysitter was with us when my brother passed, not, it, it, they were with us. We'd gone fishing and they had stayed behind as we left to go home. So they weren't directly with us, but they were part of that, that journey that day to go on that fishing trip. And anyway, I digress, but I, when I left my mother's house, I left while she was beating me yet again, I was 18. And I mean, it was a, it was a cruel beating. I, she, I had bruises and cuts and welts all over my body. And she pulled out pieces of my hair. I'd sprained my wrist, hit my face 
on her bedpost. It was just a, my mother would use anything to, to beat me with anything. So I, I ran out of the house literally and ran and never, never went back, never looked back, called my father from a convenience store. He, he came to get me or his, his wife came to get me and I moved in with him. I never went back. And I think for the first three months, I just, you know, I was really in shock. I just tried to spend a lot of time with my friends from high school because I wasn't allowed to spend a whole lot of time at their homes before that. So I, and my father didn't have a whole lot of rules, which was nice. And so I really just focused on spending time with friends, not going to church. And, and I also, for about three months, I, I watched a lot of TV because I hadn't been allowed to watch TV. And so I was just fascinated by all these shows but then after about three months, I was like, what am I doing? And so I, I, I'm not a, not a very big TV watcher the, it, it, even today. But I think, you know, after high school, you know, I was just focused on graduating and focused on where am I going to go to college and getting out of Lawton, Oklahoma, which is where I was raised. You know, I escaped my mother's insanity, but now I needed to escape Oklahoma because I was still very unhappy miserable living in Oklahoma. It was just not for me living in Lawton. And so I left after high school and I moved to New York City and lived there for eight years and eventually went to university. And that really was a huge escape for me. It was just so different from what I was raised with and so amazing to live in, in a big city. So that that was a huge escape for me. But it took me many, many, many years, decades to really work through the anger and the angst and, you know, feel safe. Yeah. Because I think when we're when we're in our 20s, I mean, we're just kind of trying to, like you say, escape it, forget about it, go and have a good life. But those things are there, aren't they? They're sort of bubbling away under the surface and they've changed who we are and they change the way we deal with the world. And it must have been a pretty cool experience, though, to go to New York because it's like as far away from this kind of tiny little cult world that you'd been brought up in. I mean, it must have been such an eye-opening experience. It really was. And the interesting thing is, is I never, I never missed a beat. I just, I got to New York and I loved it. And I just kind of fit right in and flowed and never, never looked back. But after eight years in New York City, I got tired of the cold weather and, and left and moved to Los Angeles for the first time. But it was a, it was an amazing eight years and I went to university there and graduated and started building my career in New York. So it was an incredible experience. And then a little bit further down the track, you got married. And can you tell us a little bit about the marriage? Was that a positive experience? Hmm. So my whole life, I never had a desire to get married or have kids. I love kids. I absolutely love kids. If I were to go to a party and there were a room full of adults and a room full of kids, I'd rather go hang out with a room full of kids. I, I really get a lot of joy from being around children, but I never wanted to have a family. And I think part of that was just my past and growing up and you know seeing my father divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry and my mother divorce and remarry and just so much chaos. It was just never attractive to me, but I always wanted to have a career. So that was my focus was go to college and find an industry that I could have a career and, and grow in. And so I, when I left New York and moved to LA, I started in the industry that I'm still in today. So it's been 29 years. It's been a very long time. And I started working my way up the ladder. I, I wanted to uh, excel in a company. I wanted to grow in a company. I wanted to climb the corporate ladder and I wanted to be very successful. So that was my focus for, for many, many years. But I dated while I did that. And I had you know some longish term relationships, but never thought about getting married and having children. And then I met a woman who had a daughter and they came into my life when my stepdaughter was seven and we ended up getting married. We lived in San Francisco back when they did the first initial gay marriages and I really still didn't want to get married, but she, my wife or fiance, girlfriend before all of that, really wanted to get married. It was very important to her. But there were behaviors that were coming to light and, and incidents that were very concerning to me, but I really cared for her and, and loved her very much. But there were things that, that made me question. I thought maybe she had mental illness like my mother. We married. It's probably not the right decision, but we married. It was important to her, so I wanted to make her happy. So we got married, and then behaviors 
really escalated. And as it turns out, she was a drug addict and an alcoholic, and I'm sure some mental illness. She had a really horrible childhood, really horrible childhood, worse than mine. And so knowing her background, I just, you know, I just continue to give her chance after chance after chance and try to help her. And I guess, you know, save her, if you will. But it, after six years, I just, I realized, you know, I, I could not help her. She was very physically abusive, emotionally abusive, verbal. I mean, same thing with my mother, maybe a little, a little bit more violent because she broke my bones on a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. I have scars all over my body from her abuse. I had to have her arrested. It was, it was just chaotic for six years all, all over again, just like my mother. And, you know, when you, and I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this or you, you understand this when you have a childhood filled with chaos and abuse, your bar and your level for accepting chaos and BS and abuse is very high. And my bar was extremely high. So I, you know, that, and that's not the only situation where I allowed myself to be in a very toxic situation and should have left, but it was a real eye opener once I finally divorced her and moved both the girls back to Texas, where they're from. I realized that I had a real problem with lack of boundaries and adhering to red flags. And it would take me a number of years further before I really started to lock that down. Uh, but it that was a very difficult time for me because it I was devastated that I, lo- I lost my family. I fought so hard to not have a family for so long. And then I had a family and I started really appreciating having a family uh, because my wife, it meant so much to her. And so I just admired that and I began to uh, embrace that. And then I lost it. Uh, and that was devastating, just devastating to, to me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Absolutely. And as you say, it's it's crazy, isn't it? Because it's like we come from these very toxic environments. We know we don't want to repeat that. It's the only thing we want is to have a peaceful, beautiful life. And yet our subconscious programming, our tolerance for abuse, as you say, you know, we just get dragged back in. And it's because that's what we're used to, isn't it? It's within us. And I saw something the other day, this girl was saying she'd been paired up with this very calm guy. And she was just saying, he's just too nice. He's just too calm. And I thought, I totally get that, you know, like when you don't know calm and nice, it feels wrong. It's just a really interesting one. And it's so annoying because <laughs> wouldn't it be great if we could have figured those things out a long time ago? Oh my gosh, um, yes. And within your career also, you were drawn into a very toxic situation that you you didn't see coming either. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. That's that was sort of the pinnacle of just a, an entire lifetime cycle of trauma and tragedy from childhood through adulthood. And on the heels of divorcing my wife and moving her and her daughter back to Texas, I joined a firm as the number two in the company, executive vice president under the CEO. They owned a group of companies and I oversaw several of those companies. For the first year that I was there, it was very it was very chaotic because the owners there were multiple owners and their fathers had owned the company and so they'd kind of grown up in the industry and then inherited the companies and these kids although they weren't kids anymore but they 
they all hated each other. Like all the families hated each other and they were always trying to either get each other fired or, or sue each other. It was, it was more chaos. And I had come from a very corporate environment. I'd worked for a fantastic company for almost 15 years and left as an executive for them. And it was a very respectful company. It was back then it was the uh, largest company in my industry in the United States. We were publicly traded for a time. So we had a lot of policies, procedures, rules. We were just very professional and by the book. So to go from that to this small company, uh, family of companies that where everybody was, it was just so much chaos and everybody was again, trying to sue each other or get each other fired in terms of the ownership. And that was sort of the leadership we had guiding us. And so I just really kept my head down and tried to focus on, we had bought a couple of companies and part of my job was to integrate them into our umbrella of companies. And so I really just tried to keep my head down and keep doing my job. But as I really dug into some of the, some of the things this company was involved in, I started to see that not everything was on the up and up. And I started to see things that were being done that were illegal, that were, that were prison worthy time. If, if it, you know, the owners were caught and I started questioning things I started pushing back on things and that ruffled the feathers of the owners and the CEO. And I, you know, I didn't even, I wasn't trying to fight. I think I was naive at the time. And so I wasn't trying to fight. I was just trying to do trying to convince them. I just thought they didn't know better. This is what's right. Here's what we've got to do. Well, they did know better. They had decades and decades and decades of the things that they were doing. So so they knew what they were doing. And so then I started getting very frustrated and I was having conversations with people, either the gir- the, my girlfriend that I was dating or my friends, having conversations about the company when I thought it was private conversations, just sharing my frustrations. You know, you have a bad day, you call your girlfriend, you're like, oh, this and this and this. Well, I didn't realize they were listening to me until I found a listening device in my office and then remnants of one in my car. And there was a gentleman that was with me when I found the listening device in my office. He had We had worked together at the other firm that I had come from and I hired him to run the West Coast for me. And so he was in my office when I found it and he really lost lost his mind. He was like, what kind of company have you brought me to? And he quit a few months later and I I don't blame him. But from there, after I found the listening devices, things really started going sideways. And about three and a half, four months later, I got very sick, very, very sick. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I mean, my skin was gray. I had sores in my throat and in my mouth and in my ears. I lost my voice. It was very hoarse. My eyes were very swollen and I had really bad headaches and a number of other symptoms. And people in my office would say, what is wrong with you, Kendra? I would say, I don't know, but I'm so sick. And I started to realize that when I would leave my office and go to a conference room or I would travel somewhere, I'd start, the symptoms would start to dissipate. So then I realized it had to have been something in my office. And I started looking around my office thinking maybe it was mold. I'm very allergic to black and green mold. So thinking it was mold or something in the vents and couldn't find it. And then probably a month later, you know, cause I was really just focused on the vents thinking again, it was just never, never, ever thinking somebody had planted something in my office to make me sick. But I found these chemical pods under my desk and on my refrigerator in my office. And then as time went on, I found them in my home. I found them in my car. I was unknowingly ingesting them. I was wearing them on my clothes. I was inhaling them every day. And it made me so sick. And I, I almost died. And from there, it just broke down my immune system. And it, you know, it led to so many other health complications for the next dozen years, even things that I deal with today. So, so it was traumatic and scary, very scary to know that someone tried to kill me. And they, they, one of the CEOs was murdered. So I got very lucky that I figured it out, separated myself and got away and, and am alive today to tell my story. And this happened probably 15 years ago. So some, some of the owners are dead. Well, one was murdered. Some of them are just very old now. But it, it took a lot for me to publish this book just because of the risks I felt I was taking. But I worked hard to change the names and the city, all the cities, so that no one could track back who that company is really. And and the book is about my story, not about ratting them out and trying to get them arrested. But as I was leaving, we were being investigated by the FBI. I mean, it was 
it was crazy stuff. So I really needed to leave and go to a place where I felt safe and, you know, that was legitimate and really just focus on getting my career back to where it needed to be and where I wanted it to be and get my health back. That was my biggest focus. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. And that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, never heard anything like that before. So do you think they were just slowly trying to poison you to death? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, and in the beginning, I couldn't figure it out. Right. Until I started finding more in my, when I'd find them in my, at first I was like, they're my office. Are they trying to scare me? Are they trying to get me to quit? Do they think I'm going to rat them out to the FBI? You know, what is the intent and purpose of this? And, but every time I would remove them, find them and remove them, like when I found them in my office and remove them thinking, okay, that's it. Then I would continue to be sick and then I would find them in my car or I'd find them in my home or in my, you know, I was taking one prescription back then. It was a beta blocker to slow my heartbeat because I was so stressed working for these terrible people that I I was having heart, really fast heart palpitations. So the doctor gave me something to slow those palpitations down and they put it in my prescription medicine. I mean, it, it was just like every time I turned a corner, you know, thinking that I got rid of one, I would find another. And it, this went on for months until I and, you know, and people will ask me, why didn't you quit right then? And, you know, first of all, I think I was so sick and I was trying to get my head around what was happening and was, is this really real? And then I needed to figure out an exit strategy because at, a, at as an executive level in my industry, because it's a very small industry, there's not a whole lot of executive vice president positions floating around out there to just move to. And so it took me, you know, a little time to figure out my exit strategy and move on to the company that I'm still with today and and leave those folks. But I did consult, you know, people asked me, did you go to the police? I consulted three different attorneys and I eventually hired an attorney. And, you know, when I would sit down, each time I would sit down with an attorney, I would say, you are, you're not going to believe what I have to tell you. You're going to think I'm crazy, but it's all a thousand percent true. And I would take them through it. And all three attorneys, this stuff happens all the time. Of course we believe it. This oh. corporate sabotage happens all the time. That blew me away. And then I felt a little better that I wasn't alone, but I was <laughs> very sick. Oh, my uh, goodness. So this yeah. happens all the time. That's, that's unbelievable. This is what these attorneys say. I mean, I, uh, you know. Oh, my goodness. I don't, know but... that it, I don't know that it's to the extent of murder and attempted murder, you know, whether it's just corporate sabotage. But this is, you know, sort of organized crime level, the things that I was dealing with. And that is very prevalent all over the world. Yeah. So it's organized crime. What do you call that? The mob? Correct. Yeah. Correct. I was trying to be polite by using organized crime, but yes, mob, <laughs> they all they all fit in that category. Yeah, right. And so, oh my gosh. I mean, it's not just the physical poisoning of your body. It's the mental, like the fear. You must have just been so, like even leaving all of that, like how on earth did you cope? mentally, because you would have just been so afraid of everything after that. Absolutely. I, I, I shut down. I completely shut down. I used to be a very social person. I would throw a lot of parties, had a lot of friends. When I left, I shut down my social media. I scrubbed myself as much as I could from the internet. I wouldn't talk about where I lived. I moved. I wouldn't let people in my house. I mean, I think that was one of the biggest telltale signs of the trauma that I went through is in all of that shutting down process, I would not let people in my house unless I knew them, you know, if it's friends or family that I had before I started working for that company, that was different. But And I moved, I still moved for my, for my career with this new company a couple of times and I wouldn't make new friends when I would move. I would just I would date a little here and there, but only long distance, you know, got to get on a plane and I'll come see you or maybe you can come see me for a weekend. But I, <clears throat> I just completely shut down and lived in fear, constantly looking over my shoulders, installing phenomenal security systems and camera systems everywhere I lived, always checking my rear view mirror, thinking, you know, they, they weren't successful in killing me. Are they going to come back after me? And mm -hmm. that was, that was a situation that I lived in for a decade easily oh my goodness that's a long time I I just look at your life and I think there's so much so much hard stuff right from the start you went to New York and you had this beautiful time there and there were some beautiful moments in your marriage even though it wasn't ultimately successful but 
but so much of it is it was just really, really hard. And I, I think even if you have a an experience in a, as an adult where, you know, you've got these people trying to kill you, if you've got all the resources and the good stuff from growing up, but like you say, you just get to this point where you just collapse and you can't do any more, you can't give any more, you have to kind of live in, in fear. How were you able to stop living in fear? When did you make a decision for change? I mean, I st- to this day, I live in a little bit of fear, but I'm so much better today. And I think time helps, you know, the amount of time that has gone by, you know, after, after I left that firm, I was diagnosed with Graves disease. And so I fought Graves disease for over a decade. It was very sick. It was hard for me to keep it in remission for whatever reason, but Graves disease that, that came from being poisoned. So if, if if I follow, you know, the science, the science behind it, you can get, you can get Graves disease from genetics, which is not in my genetics or, or there are triggers that can bring it out and bring it on. Two of them, two of the biggest tri- triggers are exposure to chemicals and multiple infections. And after I was exposed to all those chemicals and I was so sick, it just wore down my immune system and I kept getting infections. And I was constantly in the ER, ER after ER with this infection and that infection. And that went on for months and months and months because I had no immune system. And then five months later, I had a whole different set of symptoms. The the chemical poisoning symptoms dissipated, but I developed all these new symptoms. I lost half my hair. I went down to uh, 92 pounds. I lost like a lot of weight in just a matter of a month and a half, two months and all these other symptoms. So I, then I started going to the doctor, trying to figure that out. And it turns out it was Graves disease brought on by the poisons. So I lived with that for well over 10 years. And then I eventually had to have my thyroid removed. So that's a different that's hypothyroidism now than rather than hyper. But I always told my friends, if I ever develop cancer, it's going to be because of those poisons, because cancer doesn't run in my family. I never thought I would really develop cancer, but uh, I don't need seven and a half years later after being poisoned, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I knew, I mean, in, in, immediately when they called me to tell me and they said, you know, you need to come in and it's very aggressive and we need to figure out your treatment plan. I knew immediately that I had cancer because of those poisons. So, you know, it just continued to follow me for so long. And then they, the fallout from my surgeries and my chemo, it just wrecked my body for many, many, many years. And so, you know, I've been cancer-free for seven years, but I still deal with things health-wise from being poisoned, from Graves' disease and from cancer, all that, you know, or the gestation period for developing cancer when exposed to chemicals is seven to eight years. And I was diagnosed at seven and a half years. So I, I had no doubt that it was uh, due to that. But so after dealing with all of that and still having health issues from chemo I, it, and, and staying on lockdown, not letting a lot of people in my home and not making a whole lot of new friends, about five years ago, I hit a wall and I just thought, I can't keep living like this. Like my body feels horrible. I'm, I'm tired of living in fear all the time. I'm tired of not having a social life, you know, with a lot of friends. And so I, I decided I needed to really change my life, change the trajectory. So I started reading, learning, digging in, you know, how can I heal myself? How can I heal my body, my mind, my soul? I spent a lot of time in Sedona, which is a very healing energy, a lot of vortexes, a lot of energy workers and healers. So I spent a lot of time there and just focused on holistically, how can I heal myself and hopefully change that trajectory of that cycle of trauma and tragedy, because I could not, I just could not deal with another another situation. And from all of that healing came the need to write the book and put it all down in writing, not necessarily to publish it. I didn't initially want to publish it. I just wanted to get all the insanity down in writing. And then, and I hired a ghostwriter. And as we moved along the process, she really pushed me and encouraged me to publish. And I fought back for a number of years. It took us three years. Uh, But in the third year, I finally said, okay, I'll think about it. And as we were nearing the end of our process, I said, okay, I I think I I will publish this. I think this could probably help people. And And I came to that conclusion because I've escaped death so many times. I felt like there had to be a reason why I was still alive. And maybe the reason was to share my story 
and maybe it can help some people. So, so here we are. And, and all of that is very therapeutic. Writing the book was therapeutic. These, these interviews and talking about it is very therapeutic and cathartic. It's all, it all helps in the healing process for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so what would you say were the top three things that have helped you to heal? There's so many things that I've done and continue to do to heal body, mind, soul, heart. But I would say there's really four. I know you asked for three, but I'm going to cheat and give you one more. (laughs) And this is something that I've, I've practiced my whole life. And I think this has really helped me get through so many things that, and I was really just born with this inherent inner strength that has just gotten me through life. But I also have always had the attitude that I, I can never be in a woe is me mode, never feel sorry for myself, never sit in anger or blame that just holds you back. And, I, and I'm not saying I was never angry. I was very angry in my 20s. I was definitely angry in my 20s and had to work through that into my 30s and work out of that. And then, you know, so, I, so I've certainly had anger and even later in life, angry at the people that tried to kill me. And, but I really try not to sit in blame or self-pity and I just keep moving forward. And that is such an important step to people because people get stuck in that woe is me or in blame or in anger. You get stuck and then you you have a hard time moving out of that survivor mode into a life of thriving. And then second for me was practicing gratitude. That was a real focus for me. So important. And I had always been very grateful for my career and my success, but I really started focusing on a daily basis a conscious act of, of practicing gratitude in writing, verbally, and just really being grateful for all the things and facets of my life. Third, I would say was letting my walls down and letting people in and letting love back in. And that was very hard mm-hmm. because then I had to learn to trust certain people, not everybody, but certain, you know, I had to decide who I could trust. And some of those people breached that trust. And so then I had to remove them from my little circle. So removing that toxic energy or toxic people or toxic relationships are so important and just staying in the, in the positive. And then lastly, practicing forgiveness, which is also very difficult for so many people, including myself, you know, forgiving all the people that have harmed me. And there've been a lot, but also practicing forgiveness for myself because for my whole life, I carried so much guilt for my brother's death because he was protecting me when he died and he died and I did not. And the amount of not just survivor's guilt, survivor's guilt, but also guilt that I blame myself for his death and working through that has been a real process, but a real focus for me is, is forgiveness. Yeah. I can feel that so much. Forgiveness is a tough one, isn't it? And I think a lot of people struggle with that because people say, well, why, why should I forgive? Is it about really forgiving what people have done or just letting it go? Right. I think it's, I think letting it go is the big, the biggest piece to it, but trying to forgive, although, and I'm also a believer in karma and, you know, whether it's this life or another life, you, you, you will pay for what you do today or in this life. So, you know, I always try to take the high road. I hate using the phrase, be the bigger person, but always taking the high road, always do the right thing. And I think if anything that that religion that I was raised in did for me was give me a very high moral ground. And so, you know, bringing that with me into my adulthood, I think has helped me. But people who do bad, especially intentionally, they will they will pay for it in some form or fashion, not not by me, but by karma. Yeah, I believe that too. And writing your story, I think writing writing our stories. I mean, it is a cathartic process, but but it is it is really about sharing the truth, isn't it? We want to bring the truth to light, and it's not easy to share the truth because we've held so many secrets, we've held so much inside. How important do you think is sharing the truth about your life? I think it's critical. I and it, it you know it was very hard for me to agree to publish the book because it made me so vulnerable from things that happened in my childhood to the things that happened in my adulthood, things I'd never talked about. You know, we weren't we didn't grow up as a family that communicated well. We only talked about the Bible and God. So there wasn't a lot of communication. We didn't talk about feelings. We weren't allowed to show emotion. So I spent a lot of my adult life just really being very shut down emotionally, except 
as I was growing out of that anger phase in my 20s, no other emotion. And I still, you know, that's still a struggle for me. I'm not a crier. And I know that's just from shoving things down for so many years. But I think allowing myself to talk about the things that have happened to me through the book, because I, I still, you know, and now through all these interviews and podcasts and radio interviews, forcing myself to talk about things has been very, very healing, very, very healing. But I have friends that have read the book and said, I've known you 20, 30 years. I never knew any of this about you. And I, you know, that just goes back to growing up in a family of secrets with the, with the abuse, you know, that's secretive. And then moving on into my adulthood and being embarrassed about my marital situation. And then just being very confused about what happened to me at work and, and my employer trying to kill me, being very confused and then moving directly into just afraid for my life. So there's, I just haven't spent any time talking about any of this until I wrote the book. And then, it, and then we moved forward with interviews and podcasts. And there's been a lot more talking about these situations. Yeah. And it's funny. I think sometimes it's not until you write it down that you see how immense it all is. Right. I mean, you know, there's been so much stuff that's happened, but I've heard other people even just coming on the podcast and they're like, Oh, wow. A weight lifted because I've actually taken it all out and, and said it and and they realize what they've been through themselves because sometimes we never actually stop to look at it all, I guess. Kendra, your book is called I Can't Believe I'm Not Dead. And there's so much more detail to this story than we could possibly cover today. Is there anything else you would like us to know about your book? Where can we find you? Where can we find the book? I, well, you can find the book on any online book retailer. Every online book retailer sells it. You can also find it on my website, KendraPettyOfficial.com, or you can just Google my name, Kendra Petty, and it'll, it'll come up. My website will come up, as will the book and, and all the other retailers. I think, you know, a, a few things that I would like to share. One is, and I say this in my book, stories are meant to be told. It's It's good for the soul. It's good for healing, but it's it also, as I've gone through this process, I've had so many people reach out to me and say, thank you for sharing your story. And I've gotten all kinds of very positive feedback in, in terms of sharing my experiences, but also sharing in, in the last part of the book, some of my healing practices and some of the things that I did to get me to a life of not just being a survivor, but being a thriver. And it's an intense read. It's a, it can be an emotional read for some people but it's got a happy ending. So mm -hmm. uh, if you stick with the book and get to the ending, it's got a happy ending. And, you know, I'm not dead. I'm alive and I'm thriving. I have a wonderful life and, and I'm very grateful for it. And I'm very mm -hmm. grateful for getting to be on your show today. Oh, thank you. I'm so grateful to hear your story. And, and it is that thing of other people hearing your story and realizing we're not alone because we do experience these terrible abuses in isolation and and just being able to know that you've been through it and you've survived i'll put the link to the book in the show notes so that you can find it super easily please grab yourself a copy of the book if you're looking for inspiration on how to heal this is the story that you need to read Kendra your story is absolutely immense I'm truly in awe of what you've been through and just how much trauma and tragedy you've survived you're such an inspiration to all of us and particularly to anyone who's struggling to find a way forward after trauma your ability to grow and thrive is remarkable thank you so much for being so open and honest and I've really loved connecting with you today Thank you, Don. It's been an honor. I really appreciate the time. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique.
your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.